1 John 4, verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, <clears throat> for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time, if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected or completed within us. And Father, we humbly ask that by your spirit, you would just help us now to continue to worship you. Lord, we've prayed and fellowshiped and sang, and we want to continue in our worship now by giving you the attention of our heart and mind to be receptive to what your spirit wants to say to us through this portion of the word of God. So please speak, Lord, through what you've already spoken here in your word by your spirit's ministry. Prepare us and speak to us. And we ask this together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, if I were to ask this morning, uh, what is one of the greatest indicators of the spirit of God being at work? I suppose different Christians would likely give some various different answers to that question, which may all be legitimate and acceptable ideas of what is one of the greatest indicators the Spirit of God is at work among a group of people. The Bible, however, clearly tells us one thing for certain that we don't have to question. The Bible tells us in the book of Galatians that the fruit of the Spirit, that is the outward expression, that's what fruit is, that's the outward expression of what's going on inwardly within the sap or the root of a tree or a plant, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, right? The fruit of God's Spirit being at work through His child, through His church, is going to be the expression of God's love. In these short set of verses here that we looked at this morning, we see a simple but vital word appear, and you can check my count, 13 times. It's the word love. In that section we just read there from verse 7 to 12, 13 times the word love appears. Three times we also have a repeated phrase, and that repeated phrase three times in this section is love one another. Now, when God, who has limitless knowledge and is limitless in his expression and communication, purposely speaks in repetitious ways, that's a clear sign that God is trying to reinforce something. That's absolute evidence that God's kind of trying to drive home a point, to make sure what he is saying is heard and that it's grasped. And God desires for all of us who have experienced his love to ultimately be those who are expressing his love or extending his love to one another, demonstrating that love that we experience from God. Remember, John himself, the apostle, who actually, interestingly enough, if you do a little historical research, he became known in his aged years at the time of this writing, as we said, he's somewhere in his 90s. 
And they say that John became the apostle of love because they say that when John, at a certain point, became so old, they would just carry him from congregation to congregation, and he was weak and frail, and often they would bring him to the front, and he would simply just say a few words, and typically it was this, beloved, let us love one another. And that would be all that he would say. And it was the main message, it was the main concern upon his heart as this aged apostle. And remember, John himself heard directly from Jesus during the time when he first started walking with Jesus, which was in his teenage years. He heard Jesus say these very words, John 13, Jesus declared this and John recorded it and he heard it. A new command I give to you, Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you in the same manner, the idea is, so you must also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So John is just sharing here what we would say are fundamentals of a Christian walk. Fundamentals of the Christian walk include the basics, which begin with not only loving the Lord, but loving one another as God's people and expressing God's love. Remember the backdrop in verses 1 through 6 as John comes into now 7 through 12. John just spoke last time we saw emphatically about the importance of spiritual discernment. And he was very emphatic. Whether there was false teachers or an anti-Christian spirit, whether it's the human spirit or a demonic spirit, that it was the responsibility of the Christian to recognize the spirit of truth as opposed to the spirit of error. And that we need to, as God's people, be willing and take stewardship to make sure that we distinguish and that we should from what is of God's spirit and what's of something other than God's spirit, whether it's the human spirit, whether it's a demonic spirit, that we're supposed to make that distinguishment through spiritual discernment. And like all areas, however, having just talked about discernment, any area of any one of our lives carry to extremes gets out of balance. And I can't help but to wonder if John and his aged wisdom as a Christian and a Christian leader, having just spoke so strongly about discernment, realizing, overemphasizing anything too much, to an extreme, even discernment, can ultimately begin to get out of balance and unhealthy. And perhaps John, not wanting us trying to use Christian discernment to get a little too stern in our spirit or harsh or critical in our attitude, being so proud that we are doctrinally sound that we would begin to get unloving in our attitudes and that we would begin to dismiss the other balancing important fact of being a Christian, which is caring about people and loving people and demonstrating love to one another because God loves even flawed, broken, confused, and people who are living in complete error. And God wins people by love. And God wins people over by love. And perhaps I wonder if that's why John balances now these things in verses 7 through 12. Look with me back in verse 7 again in our text. He says, beloved, again, my loved ones, John likes that term, my loved ones, let us love one another. For love is of God or from God. And everyone who loves is, he says, clearly born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So in verses 7 and 8 here, John declares what's true about God's nature, 
He tells us very clearly this is something true about God. And then he also talks about how the way that we relate to one another as people or how we treat each other as God's children, as God's people, demonstrates if we truly are having an experience with God. The first thing, notice he does, he declares what is true about God's nature, and that's very evident at the end of verse 8 where he says those three strong words, God is love. Now, just as John said back in the first chapter, remember there he said, God is light. He said, God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. In other words, indicating that God in his very nature is pure, he's holy, He's righteous. He's everything that light represents, and there are no dark ways in God. We don't have to wonder if there's some dark side to God. God is perfect, pure light in his holiness and his righteousness and his goodness. Well, in the same way, in the end of verse 8, John now declares here, God is not only light, but he says God is love. That is what God is personally. That God himself in his very nature, his very essence, is perfect love. He is pure love. He is complete perfection of all that love is. God is love embodied in a person, which means that God in his very nature is loving and tender and caring and kind and good and giving everything that love would represent to us. And again, that word that's being used here, God is love, in the end of verse 8, and the many uses of love all throughout this passage, that term is that Greek term, we often become familiar with it, agape, that, that John's using here. And so as he tries to define what God is as love, he's describing the highest and purest form of love that is absolutely possible, the greatest kind of love because agape love describes a love of choice. It's a love different from romantic love or family love or phileo love, brotherly friendship kind of love. And the, this, this higher, different, distinct word agape was used to describe a love in its purest form that is a love that has nothing to do with attraction towards another person. It has nothing to do with the condition of another person that prompts you to want to love them. Well, that's how romantic loves work. You, know, you, you find someone and there are things about them, their physical appearance, their attraction, and that prompts you to fall in love, as we describe you know, romantically. Well, this term agape has nothing to do with anything attractive about someone that makes you want to love them because of something you see in them. Rather, it's a choice to love. It's a willingness to sacrifice and to serve another as the object of your love by a decision, regardless of their condition at all. It's to love without any conditions. It's not rooted in how we feel emotionally, but it's a conscious choice to care about someone. It's a willing decision in the purest sense that's not based on the other person's condition or their performance or, or even what they're currently doing or what they're not doing. Instead, as a result of choosing to love someone, you choose to value them and see a higher purpose to care about them despite how they treat you, despite maybe what they've done to you, Despite what condition they may be in currently, what they're doing or what they're not doing, it requires a decision. It's a picture of sacrificial love that gives and gives and gives 
to bless and to show kindness, and it requires and expects nothing in return. It's not a love that's extended expecting a response back. It's just a love of choice and decision to, in an unselfish way, sacrificially love a person to be kind and caring and remain devoted regardless of their condition. And that is the kind of love that God has for us because God is that agape love, that highest, purest form of love, that perfect love, that is what God is. So therefore, that makes sense as well that God is the origin of that kind of love. God himself is the source of that very kind of love, this agape love, because he says here as well regarding God in verse 7 and 8 here, he says that this love is of God, that is, it stems from God. Let us love one another, he says, verse 7, for love is of, it's coming from, it stems from God himself who is love embodied in his very person. So important to recognize this agape love, its origin is in God and God himself is the well from which it comes. He's the well from which every spring of this kind of love flows from. And therefore to encounter God is to experience that kind of agape love. And when a person encounters God, you encounter that kind of unconditional love that you've never experienced in any other human love. You experience a supernatural love, a unique love where you receive this great love and, and in many ways become overwhelmed by the reality that God would love you in such a way. And it's something that amazes and baffles as we realize, I can't believe that though I have done this or I'm in this condition, that God loves me still. And that he loves me unconditionally in this pure way. That's why in Romans chapter 5, it says one of the benefits of a relationship with Jesus Christ is that as we experience God through his son, Jesus Christ, Romans 5 says that this love, this agape love of God is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That is one of the beautiful benefits of having an experience with God relationally is God pours his love into our hearts. And in this overwhelming way, we experience God's love, but guess why God pours that love into your heart? It's not just to fill your cup. It's actually to overflow your cup, the Bible would say. He pours his love into our hearts that ultimately, like a well, it may overflow. And as we experience that love, we can then become a channel to express that love and to extend that love, God's love, that we're experiencing to extend the overflow to other people. And that is why John is saying here in verse seven, beloved, since God is love and love comes from God, he says, let us do what? Love one another. Let us therefore agape one another with this kind of love. And he says, everyone who loves in this way, clearly he tells us verse seven, notice this reveals our condition. Anyone who loves this way is, he says, born of God and knows God. So what the Bible is telling us there, that this becomes the evidence that we genuinely are having a relationship with God. Anyone who shows this kind of love that God has for us is revealing that they truly are, first he says, born of God. And we've talked about this term many times, even in 1 John together, it speaks, being born of God, of how we actually become a child of God biblically. A lot of times we loosely throw around that term. Oh, we're all children of God. God loves all the little children of the world. We're all created by God, the Bible says. 
God is all of our creator. God creates life. God establishes life. God values life. But the Bible teaches that there comes a time when a person must become or can become a child of God. The Bible actually teaches that there's the potential to be a child of the devil spiritually in that spiritual condition or a child of God. And the way we become a child of God is when we realize that we have been born in a sinful condition, spiritually dead, without life or relationship with God, and that we need a relationship with God and recognizing our depraved condition within, realizing that Jesus came to make that possible through his life and death and resurrection. When we believe upon what Jesus did for us, dying on the cross for our sins and raising again, and receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, the Bible says that in so doing that, that's how we experience a spiritual birth. That's how we become born of God and we become God's child as spiritual life enters into us when we receive Jesus as Savior. And he says, if we've been born of God, and are knowing God, and the word there, know, doesn't mean to know intellectually about someone. It means to know experientially. So John is saying, if you can love in this manner, in the way that God loves, it's the evidence that reveals that truly you have been born of God and that you are experiencing God. You know God experientially. And that makes complete sense because if this is a supernatural love, you can't generate that on your own as a human being. Right? It's only those who are experiencing God relationally and his divine nature has been poured into us by his spirit that we are then able as just channels to receive such love and extend such love. So the child of God has a capacity to love in this supernatural way to express agape love. Now, in contrast to that, verse 8, he says there, he who does not love, he who does not express this agape love that God shares, does not know God experientially. And what he's indicating there is the other side of that. A person who does not know God experientially through an encounter with God is going to lack this ability to show love to other people. And that makes complete sense. Why? Because if it's a supernatural love that's origin is in God, if you're not in relationship with God, you can't manufacture this unconditional love. As a human being who by nature is, as we all are, you know, selfish and at times unkind and impatient and, and, and weak and sinful, we can't create within ourselves agape love. We can't generate agape love. If a person is not experiencing God, they can't love the way that God loves they don't have the capacity within themselves to love in this way. And that also means they're not going to have love for God's people the way God's people have loved one for another. John's talked about this multiple times, that one of the ways we can tell we've passed from spiritual death into now spiritual life is our love for one another as God's people. Because before we were a Christian, we didn't love, nor did we like, nor did we want to be with God's family because it wasn't our family. We wanted to be with the world because that was who our spiritual family is. And so he says, one of the ways that you can tell if someone's not yet in a relationship with God and they don't genuinely know God yet is they won't really love God's people because God's people aren't their people. They will love the people that, of their family, which is the people of this world. So he says, because of who God is, those who are experiencing God they will be those who are then able to express this love that God has. And now, 
Having said these things, he then illustrates more of what this agape love looks like. It's almost as if John says, look, I don't want it to be misunderstood. God wants us to know what this love looks like. So John says to us in verse 9, in this, the love of God, the agape love of God was manifested, revealed toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. So notice, God wants us to be aware of this great love and to experience it personally in our lives. And here in verse 9, he tells us how God purposely revealed his love in the clearest manner possible. God, who's all-knowing and all-wise, said, this is the kind of love I have. What is the clearest way I can show this kind of love? What is the absolute strongest way possible I can declare and demonstrate this love that I have for humanity because he wanted to make sure each person was aware of his love. He says there, verse 9, look at it, in this, the idea is in this way, or we might say by this act, through this purposeful method, he says, the greatness of God's love was manifested. And that word manifested that's used there, the Greek term, means to purposely reveal something openly. It was a term that was often used if you had a statue with a covering over it and you would pull the covering off, the revelation, it was a purposeful, I want you to see this. It was a way of revealing something in an unquestionable way so that it was not hidden any longer. So it couldn't be missed. It was a public display to show something clearly. One translation renders these phrases here. God showed us how much he loved us. In other words, John's telling us God wanted to make sure that we saw the depths of this kind of love that he had for us. He wanted to make it extremely evident, so he purposely revealed it by putting this love on display, which teaches us that God demonstrated that real love is not something that's just spoken, it's something that's shown. In this, the love of God was shown, manifested, purposely revealed, because love is something that is meant to be expressed through actions, through demonstrations. He says, this love was shown, notice, look at the term, he says, toward us. It wasn't just communicated to us, it was shown toward us. God didn't just talk about this love, he gave an object lesson that we as the recipients of his love would be able to see it in an unquestionable way so that we would know it for absolutely certain. And how did he do that? He says, verse 9, here's how God demonstrated, displayed his love toward us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. The Bible tells us despite our, what, sinful condition, our rebellious turn away from God as humanity, directing our offense towards God, that though our sinfulness had us in a place of separation from God, and we were not in relationship with God, yet nonetheless, God motivated by this great love that had nothing to do with our attractiveness as human beings, because we weren't very attractive. It wasn't as if God was attracted. In, no, it was a choice. God chose to love us. In our most unlovable condition, God demonstrated that love by rather than casting us off, 
rather than pushing us aside, rather than dismissing us because of our rebellion towards him. Instead, God lovingly made a pathway and God himself didn't just save us. God himself became the savior himself. God sent his only son, Jesus, to come in a gracious way. It says he sent his son into this world, which had done what? Turned its back on him, turned away from God to display his love to rescue mankind. What an amazing thing. God was so concerned about us, even in our worst condition, that he was so concerned in love for us, wanting our best and our welfare, that he sacrificially, it says, sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live for him, to display his love in a way that it would be so evident, to send his absolute best, his son, to us, to reveal his love to the greatest extent, Jesus being the representative of mankind, living in a body of flesh, representing humanity, being fully God and fully man, live the sinless, righteous life that none of us can live as human beings because we sin and fail. And he satisfied the righteous standard that God requires to go to heaven. And then he stepped into our place and took all of our guilt and all of our sin and all of our wrong upon himself and let himself be punished through physical death and suffering, and then to rise again from the dead to offer to us relationship with God, to give us forgiveness of sins and what's needed for our eternal salvation. And let me just impress upon you this morning, if I could, please consider for just a moment what extent God was willing to go to to prove how much he loved us. Consider the extent. That's why John said back in chapter 3, Behold, what manner of love God has given us that we, we know who we are, that we could be called children of God. You know, often we know John 3.16, probably one of the most familiar Bible verses. And a lot of times I almost wonder if we gloss over the first part of John 3.16, which says this, for God so loved the world. We know that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. But the first thing Jesus said is God so loved. So much love my father had for this world that he gave me to experience all that I would experience, to spare you from eternal punishment and torment and hell, and that by just believing in me, you can have forgiveness of sins. You can go free. You can have eternal life after this difficult life on earth is over. Paul in Romans 8 expressed a similar thing of the extent of God's love. In Romans 8, he said, God who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. You hear that word? Paul said, he didn't spare his own son. He spared no exception. God could have said, look, I mean, I'll do a lot for them. I'll give a lot for them, but somewhere I've got to draw a line. There was no reluctancy. God did not withhold from us. He did not hold back. And don't ever miss the reality that God didn't spare even his son, his perfect, pure, beautiful son. I don't know any parent who can't grasp that to some finite degree. Your child, not for people who were nice, but for people who hated you, people who spit in your face, 
people who wanted nothing to do with you. And God said, I will give up. I will sacrifice my own son. I'll let you spit on my son and disgrace my son and beat my son and abuse my son. And I'll let you do that because I love you so much. That's hard to grasp mentally. But God did not withhold. Again, the idea here is to understand the extent that God was willing to go to, to what? To prove his love for you so that you would never question how great his love is for you. God's heart, understand, folks, it matters to him. It really, really matters to God that we know how much he loves us. He doesn't want us to miss it. He doesn't want us to be unaware of his love. He's done everything he possibly could to show how great, how deep, how wide, how vast his love is for us. He doesn't want us to question his love for us. He wants us to be aware of it to the fullest extent and to be confidently assured of his great love for us, that we sense it, we grasp it. And look, that is so important and why John is saying, look, in this, God's love, it was manifest. It was revealed clearly to us that we can look at what God did with his son and that we can be certain and know the great extent of God's love. And that's so important because would you agree with me? It's not always easy living this life, right? And we navigate this life on this fallen earth with all the effects of sin. And we see the rotten stuff that goes on. And we see people suffering and going through loss. And we see people get sick and people treat each other horribly and nasty things that happen. And we lose loved ones. And and we go through all these things that are part of a fallen, sinful existence on earth. And we wrestle. And we have questions that we can't align in our human reasoning with why and how come. And all these, and we struggle and go through all these hardships on earth, and we don't have answers to things, and we go through struggles. But one thing God says that you can be certain of through that is I showed you how much I love you. And you may not understand a whole lot, but God says, the one thing I want you to understand is how much I love you. And that's why I found the best way which was sending my son in the way that I did so that you can look at that when you can't figure anything else out and you could say, I don't understand anything else, but that is the proving point of God's love. And when I'm questioning it and I'm confused and I'm trying to reconcile things, I don't have to measure God's love by circumstances because that will always lead to confusion. I don't try to measure God's love, nor are we supposed to measure God's love by how we feel or what's going on in our thoughts, because our thoughts deceive us, our feelings lie, right? That song we sing, they're always drifting like, and thoughts and feelings don't always line up with things in life. We can't measure God's love by what's happened to us or what hasn't happened to us. We measure God's love by knowing he manifested it in this, he sent his son. And that's the, the foundational proving point. That's why John said in the last chapter, in chapter three, verse 16, by this, We know love because Jesus laid down his life for us. Again, whenever the New Testament speaks of the love of God, it always, always, always points to that one singular foundational thing. God sending Jesus and Jesus sacrificially dying in our place because that is the one thing that keeps us rooted knowing God loves us no matter what's happening in our human existence. 
to look to that as the foundation to always assure ourselves. And notice, God wants us not just to be aware of it mentally and to hear about it, but to experience it firsthand. And that's why he says at the end of verse 9 here that we might then live through Jesus. That is, God manifested his love through Jesus, and the way that we experience God's love is by Jesus imparting his life and his love to us via relationship, that we might now, through Jesus, who's risen from the dead, the personage of God's love, that we might live through experience with him, experience life through Jesus. And there are many ways Jesus imparts his life to us as an act of love. Jesus imparts his life to us by giving to us the gift of God, which is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So one of the ways we live through Jesus, not now, but forever, is Jesus gives of his very life, and Jesus is the eternal son of God. And so he's given to us eternal life through himself as we receive him, that gift of eternal life. Jesus gives to us life in the sense that it's through Jesus we can have a relationship with God. He gives us his life that we can have a living relationship with God. And if I were to venture to say one other thing in connection to that before verse 10, through Jesus, I would venture to say we live through him in the sense that God in his love gives us what I would just say is a real life. Because before I knew Jesus, I didn't have a real life. I was living, but I didn't have a real life. I didn't have a life that had fulfillment and purpose and reality, and the best of what God as a loving father wants for us. And those who are living, that aren't living in relationship with God, are living through Jesus Christ. They're living, but they're not living. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and that more abundantly. You know, I just was talking to someone recently. We just were kind of talking about that very reality of, you know, the, the, the lives of individuals who just don't know God and aren't living with Jesus and the quality and condition and circumstances of that kind of life and lifestyle as compared to just living and walking with Jesus and the difference of the fruitful, wonderful, stable, purposeful, healthy, meaningful life experience that we get to enjoy as God's love is displayed by getting us to just live with Jesus and the wonderful way that God shows his love to us in that manner. John says, verse 10, and in this is love. Notice, not that we loved God, not that we initiated love first, but that he loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So in this thing, John says, we understand what real love is. Again, he's further defining this agape love that God is. And that is, he says, God initiated love toward us first when we wanted, as we've talked about, nothing to do with God, right? We didn't initiate the love relationship. We were in rebellion to God, hurting God, if you would, and God continued to love us in that condition. We didn't have love for God. We weren't trying to stir up a relationship with God. Our love towards God is nothing other than a response, the Bible teaches. God initiated love. It says there that not that we love God, but that he loved us. He exercised love towards us, we might fairly say, when we were the most unlovable that we ever could have been. That's what the Bible teaches. When we were the most unlovable, showing no love to God, he was trying to show love to us. He was demonstrating love towards us. And look, that's very important to accept by way of application this morning, because let me say to you this morning, regardless of your past, and I know we all have pasts, 
regardless of your past and honestly, regardless of your present condition. And let me go further to say, regardless of what people think about you. And let me go a step further to say, regardless of what you think about yourself, God loves you. He's always loved you. He loved you in your past and even when you were doing those things in your past. And God, knowing your past, still loves you. God, knowing what you're presently doing, he still loves you. God, being fully aware of everything about you that even you may not like about yourself, God loves you in that condition. That God created you. God designed you. God doesn't make mistakes. And God loves you. And God wants us to be fully assured of that, that he loved us at our worst. He loved us in our absolute worst. So if he loved us when we were at our absolute worst, why do we ever think there's something we need to bring to the table to make God love us? That's called human relationships that we feel like to gain acceptance, to gain approval, to have love of other people. We have to perform a certain way and, and we're always craving to get people to love us. You don't have to do that with God. I'm not encouraging it, but you can be an absolute rebellious jerk. God will still love you. Some of us were this last week, maybe. I don't know. You can't make God not love you. He loved you from the very origin, from the beginning. It's a choice. You can't change God's mind. Our love for God is just a response. That's why John's going to say in chapter 4, verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. That we're the responders. We're just responding to, as you experience God's love, not that we loved him, but he loved us. As you experience that kind of love, it's only then that's why we all fall in love with God. Because when you experience that kind of love, that's what attracts us then to love God, to choose to love God in response. And one of the greatest ways God demonstrated his love is he sent his son, John says again, to here uses the term, verse 10, be the propitiation for our sins. And that word propitiation is just a, a big doctrinal word that simply means the satisfactory payment for sin to appease God's wrath against sin. Again, God is also, we said what? Light. God's holy. God's righteous. God's pure. We're sinful, all of us. And so our sinfulness does offend a holy, righteous, pure God of light, the darkness within us. But the wonderful thing is, is that God found a way, the Bible says, Romans 3, to be just and not compromise being a just God, and at the same time be the justifier of those who are willing to believe. And the way God did that is God in his wisdom and love and justice and all of that combined said, I will create a way through sending my son to live as a sinless, righteous man on behalf of humanity because they can't do it. And then after he satisfies the righteous requirement for entering into heaven, I will then in turn also punish him with all of the holy, righteous wrath of an almighty God against the wicked sinfulness of all of us as human beings, and he punished his son and allowed his son to suffer on our behalf the punishment that we deserve so that he could satisfy the wrath of God so God could remove his wrath and offer us forgiveness and acceptance to be his child and to enter into heaven. What a marvelous thing. The Bible says the soul that sins shall surely die. That's what we deserve for our sin. That's why Jesus had to die. Somebody had to die for my sin. 
Jesus did. And that satisfied the wrath of God. He became the satisfactory payment. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrated his own love towards us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. What a glorious thing to be able to know that God's not angry at me. God's wrath is not towards me. God is completely loving and gracious because of what Jesus satisfied in the heart of the righteous nature of God, that God can be kind and merciful and gracious to us in our failures. And what a glorious opportunity through simply believing upon and receiving what God's offered in his son, Jesus. God says, you don't have to worry about my wrath towards your sin because my wrath towards your sin was poured out on my son. I did that as a perfect way so that you could escape from the judgment of hell and the punishment for your sins and you could simply experience my love and my grace and my kindness towards you as a benevolent and a good father. Now, John, having built this understanding, then comes back to the applicable thing. Verse 11, beloved, my loved ones, if or since God so loved us, the idea is like that, we also ought to, he says, love one another. So the reality of how God loved us, the Bible says, becomes our moral and spiritual obligation to therefore choose to love one another with the same kind of love that God showed towards us as we receive it from God. If or since God loved us in this way, John says, we now ought to, we should love one another in the same way that God has now loved us. It's something, in other words, as a Christian, that we are to do in obedience to God. Not how we feel about someone, but in obedience to God, we love that way as God enables us to, as God empowers it. God actually asks us to agape love one another. It's what we're called to do. Jesus said in John 15, these things I command you, that you love one another. In Romans chapter 13, Paul builds on this concept using a very interesting analogy. He uses the analogy of paying what we owe people, not having debts and satisfying the debts or obligations that we have. Romans 13 says, pay what is due to others. Owe no one anything. Let no debt remain outstanding. Maybe a word of the Lord for someone here. Then he says this, accept the continuing debt that you never pay off. Accept the continuing debt to love one another. It's a continuing debt you can never pay off, that we keep owing love to one another. And then he says this, for whoever loves has fulfilled the law. Wow, that's powerful. Whoever loves in the way God loves that we're fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law. Now look, this morning, if and when, and we all do, if we struggle with loving one another, that doesn't mean that we just, I just can't do it, I just can't do it. What it means is that we have to refocus on God's love for us. Because he says, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another that means perhaps we've just lost sight of the love God has towards us. Perhaps in some way we've lost appreciation for the incredible love God has shown to us. And because we've lost appreciation, we've gotten unfocused. And that's the reason why I'm struggling to love another person. And what I need to do is go back to the foot of the cross and say, God, would you please pour your love into my heart fresh again? Let me sense and see and recognize again the incredible love that you've shown towards me so that I can be filled with that experientially and then I can say, you know what? I ought to 
extend that love to other people. It's only right to share it as God has given it to me. So he says, that's the key there. We have to allow our hearts to be reacquainted. So what does that look like in a personal way? How do we love one another in the same manner that God loved us? Well, very simply, one of the things that we've already seen is that we should initiate love when the other party perhaps is not in a right condition, or maybe the other party is mistreating us. Isn't that how God loved us? God initiated love. We weren't in the right condition. We weren't treating God right, but God took the higher road and he loved us unconditionally. And this is the idea of how we love one another as God loved us. Perhaps we have to love someone in an unlovable condition. Maybe what we need to do is say, yes, I've been offended by them. Yes, I've been hurt by them. And maybe even their heart is cold towards us or hard towards us. But we love them because that's what God did for us. And so we extend the same kind of love. We determine to love them despite the situation between us. It also means that we have to love sacrificially because that's how God loved, right? He gave Jesus in a very sacrificial way, which means if I'm going to love the way God loved, it means that it may cost me something to show love. I may have to pay a personal cost to set aside my rights, to give up my privileges, to do what's in the best or the welfare of another person. And sometimes the love the way that God loves is to choose to do that thing. God gave his absolute best. He didn't spare. That's the model. And I have to say sometimes, in order to love them, it may cost me. But I need to, I, it may cost me, but I'm willing to pay a cost to show them God's love, to show them love. And that's one of the ways that we do that. And again, the other thing that's clear about God's love is God's love was demonstrated. It wasn't just declared. And so often as Christians, I, I, I hate to say, but in my own admission, it's so easy to say we love someone, to declare we love. We do the same thing with forgiveness. So I forgive them. You treat them horrible, but you say you forgive them. You treat them like they still did it, but you say you forgive them. There's an inconsistency there. God didn't just declare his love. God demonstrated his love. And so through actions, we have to find intentional, practical ways to purposely show love. Maybe that means that unlovable person or whatever it costs you to initiate or to sacrifice personally, you show them love through some action that requires a great personal denial and cost to yourself, but you want to demonstrate love, so you do something. And you demonstrate that love. You, in a practical way, show love. And let me just say, showing that kind of love, it's not going to come naturally. So please, don't go out of here this morning and say, that's it. I'm going to huff and puff and I'm going to blow his walls down, and I'm going to show him some love, because I can tell you, that's going to last about 30 seconds. It's not natural. Here's where it stems from, for me anyway. God, I know where my heart's at, but God, if you'll give me love for that person, God, if you will pour your love into my heart for that person, I'll extend it, Lord, but, but you got to give me your love, Lord. I don't have it in me. My heart's human, Lord. My, my heart's hurt. My heart's offender. Just my heart's cold. Or, Lord, I'm just selfish, Lord. But if you pour your love into my heart, if you give me super, and God will do that, the fruit of the Spirit, he can give you that love, and then you can extend it to that other person as God loved you. John concludes saying, no one's ever seen God at any time. The idea is in a, in a physical sense, the invisible God 
But if we love one another, he says again, God abides, that's our word, remains, continues working within us, and his love has been perfected, made complete within us. So notice, the invisible God dwelling in the eternal spiritual dimension, we don't see with a physical eye right now, but that doesn't mean God has not left clear evidence of his existence. And what is the clearest way God gives evidence of his reality and existence? One of the primary ways God reveals himself on this earth now is how? Through his children. And so this is what John's coming to here. People may not see God in this way or that way, but one of the best ways God wants himself to be seen as alive and at work is through his children showing this supernatural, amazing love in a way whereby people recognize as they see that kind of love, people don't love people like that. We're all a bunch of selfish people. And people, there's, God must be real. If he could still love her, if she could still love him, if they could still, if they could get beyond that and still show love to one another, God has got to be real. And God's going, that's what I was aiming for. Now people see I'm real because they see this supernatural love. They see this unusual love as we love one another. He says God's love is perfected. It's manifested. It's revealed in its greatest sense. That word perfected means to bring to completion. So the idea here is as we demonstrate this kind of love to one another, it brings to completion the full plan that God has always had with his love. And what was that? That we would first experience his love by knowing it ourselves, and that then we would be able as his children to express as a channel that love by extending it to others. Look, folks, I don't think I have to convince you this morning. People in the world do lots of unkind, cruel, hurtful things to one another. And let me go a step further. Sadly, from my observation, sometimes even God's children do some really cruel unkind, selfish things to one another. And so the heart of God, his highest concern among his family is what? That we'd seek to love one another. God says, that, that matters to me as your father, please, as my kids. Show my love among one another. Let people see a loving environment among the family of God. Why? Because that, in God's heart, is a clear indication. When that kind of love, when love is being expressed, God says, to me, that's a clear indication my spirit's at work among you. Because the fruit of God's spirit is what? Love. Good job. Let's stand together and pray.